You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, broadcasting out of Irvine, California. You wish elevator music sounded this good. Hello, my name is Kimberly Martin. And you're listening to Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County. A fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity. On KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Opinions expressed on this show are totally mine and do not reflect the opinions of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County and other shows, please go to KUCI.org. Well, welcome. Hello. Welcome to Kimberly Martin's Real People of Orange County. With me today in the studio is my ever-important engineer, Heather McCoy. Heather, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. I really don't think I could do this without you. And um, so thank you. Perhaps you can. Maybe someday. (laughs) Maybe someday. You're essential to my life right now. Oh, so our guest today, I haven't introduced you to formally, but I want to introduce you to Jody Levine. She is an adorable redhead. <laughs> and Jody is here representing Earth Roots. Um, and I know Jody because one of my children was lucky enough to participate at Earth Roots Field School, a um, creative and outdoor learning experience that helped children develop the connection with the natural world around them. So Jody is here to help us develop a connection with our natural world here in the studio. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for having me here. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, I'm so glad that you made it. And with last minute, you know, regalia, we pop in here and we're figuring out how to get our footing here in the studio. And so, Jody, I thought you would be perfect to have in the studio because it is, well, April is really the day, the month that we have Earth Day. And so there's a huge focus around us with this whole eco-awareness movement. And I, you're the first person I thought of. <laughs> Thank you. So um, I want you to talk to me a little bit about, well, first of all, I want the listeners to know where you came from. And you're a native to Southern California, but let's talk a little bit about your connection to Orange County, okay? Sure. I was born in San Clemente, and I have pretty much a typical Orange County upbringing. I lived in a couple different places, San Clemente and Laguna Hills. I currently live in Tribuco Canyon. I've also lived in Laguna Beach and off Ortega Highway, so I've definitely seen some of the gems of... Of South Orange of County. South Orange County. That's right. You haven't you haven't uh, moved too far in terms of your domicile, but um, well, what well, you said something earlier. You said a typical Orange County upbringing. I, I want to know about that. <laughs> what is that? I, I'm trying to think about what that would be for a girl. But this, being that this is the real people of Orange County, I want to know a little bit about what you perceive to be the typical Orange County upbringing. I have some ideas. I think it involves more than one uh, dance class, ballet, tap, and jazz, maybe. <laughs> Not just one. Yeah, I I definitely had my tap in ballet as a kid and really had strong influence from my experiences with gymnastics. Oh. I was on the diving team in high school and was a cheerleader in high school and junior high. Oh, so you really... going to the mall. Ran the gamut. (laughs) (laughs) Did you get dropped off back then without your parents? Oh, yeah, I did. And I spent a lot of time on the beach. Summers on the beach is a really strong memory for me. Wow. Yeah. 
And I, I remember camping once as a kid mm-hmm. at locally. Oh, one time only. One time I camped at Casper's Wilderness Park. I think I was about six. And a little bit older than that, my family took a road trip up to Yosemite and we stayed in a little cabin there. But as a child, those, those are my only two real memories of, of being exposed to nature with my family camping. Right. The, the really rich experience I remember of being connected with nature was more of a run for your life type experience in the backyard wow. that turned, you know, it kind of opened up into a golf course. And after some flooding in this golf course, um, the, some of the areas became a little swampy. And, and I think this was something that really stuck with me through my whole life where my brother and I were out there adventuring and looking for tadpoles when his, his foot got stuck in the mud. And oh, wow. Like a quicksand kind like of stuck? quicksand. I thought he was going to die there. (laughs) I was probably five and he was maybe seven. Oh, you were young um, to be running. We were just exploring a little bit. And, you know, at that age, when you lose a shoe, it's kind of a big deal when it's mud. And it was the first time we'd ever been out there tromping around by ourselves without our parents. Right, right. uh, Sure enough, you know, he pulls his foot out and we start running back to the house and with just one shoe on and we get all the way back home and... Oh, we were just so grateful for our lives. But it was really not too far from the house and not a big deal that his foot was stuck in the mud. And Right, right. But it kind of grabs you. And, and I think that survival experience, if you want to call it that, really helped shape my, my love for nature and my feeling of independence and wanting to be confident in experiences like that. Wow. Okay. So you, um, so you did, so it wasn't like you had a huge exposure to, to the natural world around you as a child, except for this one formative experience where you had to save yourself or save your brother in this case. Well, that was a a real strong one, but I mean, just being in the backyard and playing and watching lizards run under rocks. I remember that as a kid and I had a neighbor who would point out the wild strawberries that grew in his front yard, but, but no real strong mentorship or so then, long-term connections. So then how did you get from there, this typical childhood you mentioned, to where you are now? Mm. What, do you think, what do you think sparked that journey? That's a great question. I would say a lot of little things along the way with some of these more strong formative experiences. In high school, I had a boyfriend who really loved camping, and so I got exposed to camping through that. And then in college, I had friends who loved backpacking and doing more adventurous ocean sports like kayaking and surfing, rock climbing. And and then I I also had my parents at that time who my mom and dad were growing fruit trees in their backyard. And I was getting to enjoy and eat some of the gifts that were coming out of the garden, which led me to apply for and go on a three-month agroecology program in Costa Rica. At uh, what age was that? That's that was in college. Okay. You just out of the blue just said, I'm just going to go on an agricultural trip. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, I, by then oh. I'd had my first garden in college and had taken a few biology courses. I was a biology major at UC Santa Barbara. Okay. And there was a poster talking about this great trip and it showed pictures of people with these rubber boots on and in the jungle and shovels in their hands and it looked like a lot of fun. (laughs) So you turned in your tap shoes for some uh, some galoshes. (laughs) The tap shoes were long gone by then. (laughs) But yeah that experience really helped shape me and gave me tangible experiences 
doing biological surveys and meeting people. It was my first time ever living with a Costa Rican family. I lived with them on the weekends and so was immersed in a new language and a new lifestyle. Right. We had chickens running around the yard and we would the, the grandmother of the house would send me down with the youngest children because those were the ones I could communicate with best in Spanish. That's right. Send me down to the the guava trees to go harvest fruit for breakfast and things of that sort, which was just phenomenal at the time. And how long again were you there? Three months. Wow. I'm going to go to Costa Rica my first time in June. Oh, great. To help. I know. Th- I don't even know if this is legal, but to help harvest the uh, turtle eggs. See that some of them make it to the ocean. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I remember being told as a child that this was one of my formative experiences. I just wanted to see those turtles be born and make it to the ocean. But I remember getting the um, the film on reel that we always have with the, the tape clicking whenever the machine would break and the teacher futzing with the machine, <laughs> the complex machine. Um, you know, funny, that reminds me, I knew how to work that machine, Heather, so maybe this one shouldn't be that hard. They look like they're from the same generation. <laughs> well, I, I think this is a little bit newer, but yeah, the teacher struggling with the reel-to-reel was always funny. You remember that? Yeah, well, in my era, they mostly struggled with the VHS machine. Oh, yeah, you're a lot younger than I am, though. Yeah, yeah. A whole whole different era entirely. (laughs) Well, it didn't make it, it, I mean, I'm sure the comedic effect of it was still the same. Right, probably. Yeah, Yeah, it was the same, it's just the same from generation to generation. But um, I'm looking forward to that, so I want to hear a little bit about Costa Rica. Sure. Well, I was with a group of other college students, and we had a professor, Rosemeyer, from UC Santa Cruz, and she had been there many, many times leading these trips, and she was working in partnership with a couple of Costa Rican interns who were studying at Earth University, which is a phenomenal mm. place to study if you're looking for that. Is that an online college? Uh, no, that's a location in Costa Rica. Oh, okay. In the main, the capital, San Jose. I think it's just on the outskirts of San Jose. And it's an agricultural university. And if you go to Whole Foods in Orange County, you can even buy Earth University bananas, which oh, wow. are grown there by the students. I just went there today on my way into the studio. Did you get an Earth University banana? No, I got, a, I got a toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> an earthy kind. <laughs> I can tell you that from my palate, the Earth University bananas are the best ones you can buy on the market right now. Oh, wow. They're delicious. Wonderful. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Well, okay, so that experience brought you to where you was one, of, well, like you said, one of the ones that brought you to where you are now. When, how, well, I don't want to ask you your age, but like what, what part of this journey did you decide about crea- the creation of Earth Roots? Okay, well, not too long after I got back from Costa Rica, I graduated college and applied for my first job right out of college, which was to be a naturalist for a company that led the sixth grade outdoor science field trips all throughout the state of California. And so I got my shoes wet, my feet wet in the... Right away. Right away in the Nature Connection field. And we would basically hop from Catalina Island to Joshua Tree National Park and then up to the Santa Cruz Mountains and lead these three to five day camping trips with a busload of kids and then send them home at the end of the week and wow they'd be on their way and we'd be on to our next site I did that for a few years and it sounds to me like you avoided a desk job I sure did (laughs) yeah (laughs) but I took a desk job in the middle of that four-year period I was offered a, a job I couldn't refuse and I took it and and the, it was funny he actually the boss Rabbi Steve Cohen he actually encouraged me 
to create nature connection opportunities for the college students I was working with. So it was really Wonderful. a pleasure that I had this desk job with an opportunity for... So this theme just kept popping up kept for Kept popping you. up. Right. And uh, after about four years of doing work with my naturalist job, I had a, a really interesting injury and I couldn't use my hands anymore. My whole neck, hands, arms had a strange nervous sensation and like little pinpricks so I couldn't use my hands and I went back home to live with my parents for how that just lasted for a long period several of time? months oh several strange. months is life-changing wow it's one of those things that I look back on now and I think to myself okay well it was totally odd and brought me to totally change my life hmm. and from that experience Earthroots was born hmm. so I, I really see it in that way that my life changed and this other great opportunity came about and I had no intention before moving back to Orange County to ever start any kind of right. nonprofit organization and was it something that just happened right away or was it gradual with uh, your hands oh, with the injury it was it was a couple weeks coming on and then it just, you know, just lasted <laughs> yeah yeah for a couple several months six months or so and you know over time it shifted I changed what I was eating and saw a whole load of different kinds of healers until I found the you, pattern that worked for me. To you probably had to. I, I mean, there are some illnesses that doctors just can't fix. And when you stump them, you're on your own. Mm. Was it something like that? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. But I, I really leaned on and found incredible practitioners who helped guide my path towards healing. And I'm so grateful so and grateful for them. That would have opened you up to the natural world from yes. a different side, too, from yes. a medicinal healing side. Well said. Yeah, interesting. So, okay, so you moved back with mom and dad. Moved back Is home that with where mom and dad. the Levine family farm that you refer to yes. on your annual thing that I keep missing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <that was laughs> we wished you were there. It was a fantastic festival. And every year, my parents open up their backyard farm to host a few hundred people and musicians and we bring in some food and add to the flock of chickens and ducks and goats for an afternoon of fun. You and time it so that there are hatchlings at, at the family picnic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's pretty incredible. Well, that was just by luck this year. My good friend uh, is a kindergarten teacher and his class hatched eggs of chickens and ducks this year and they were exactly one week old for the week for the day of the festival mm. and so we had perfect little, little tiny cute cute chicks there and ducks wonderful we have seven new babies on our little plot at, up at the house chickens and, yep oh nice we have some baby turkeys too wow <laughs> Somebody rode over a turkey on the way in today, so we lost one of our turkeys Aww. this morning. Aww. That is uh, one of the drawbacks of free-range living. Mm. So we don't have any of ours cooped up. Wow, they get to walk around freely. Remarkable. There's is there perimeter fences either? No. Mm -mm. They, wow. They, um, they're, they're so suggestible. You know, you send them on their little way, and they come right back. They really bond to you, and when we walk out the door, they greet to us by running from all far reaches of the yard and pretty much um, I think if we have food in hand within the next 30 seconds they'll keep doing that forever. <laughs> <laughs> have you noticed them being good watchdogs so to speak? Uh, Do they no. alert you when people are coming? No I don't think so. No I haven't noticed that. Maybe my rooster's doing that but he crows all the time so it's <laughs> kind of hard to 
hard to know if if he's signaling us in some way. Mm-hmm. It might be nice to to check into that. I have some friends who intentionally get turkeys so that they have some something on their property making a noise when they have oh. visitors or other animals come onto site. I will say though that what I've noticed between the difference between the turkeys and the chickens is remarkable. The chickens are a much bolder animal. The turkey is this sweet little passive creature as as a baby anyway. The the in comparison, you we were told that we had to raise the baby turkeys with some of the chickens because the turkeys weren't smart enough to figure out how to feed themselves oh, or to man. care for themselves and that they would need to observe the behavior of the chicken to figure it out. So um, so we've noticed that there's a, a really sweet vulnerability to, to turkey baby. <laughs> That's, that makes me feel even more worse that we killed one today. Aww. I didn't personally. I don't know who did. We have yet to figure out who drove up the driveway and was coming too fast. Mm. But they nailed one of my turkeys in the driveway. So Yeah. Well, that's a content for a Hey You letter to the OC Weekly. Maybe so, yeah. yeah. My, my my son held a proper burial within a sh- short amount of time, and it was it was beautiful. <laughs> okay, back to Jody. <laughs> I could talk about chickens you know, forever. The turkey so. does need a good mention there. Yeah, they do. He he lived a good life. So, but we then had to name him in order to bury him. So that was a whole other thing. Why why we didn't? Name I was him just before. wondering what a turkey. What quantifies a good life for a turkey? I think that he was loved. Oh, okay. Yeah, he came and he was loved, and and he will be, um, he will be missed yeah. and remembered, right? Yeah, all the elements. I have, I have a question. Why did you decide to bury the turkey instead of eat the turkey? He's too little. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean they're babies. They're only about four weeks old. Oh, so thing. and I had only just, you know, we keep them cooped up for. A f- few weeks until they get their footing mostly so that the bigger birds we have several at different stages of growth and they do establish a pecking order so I was mostly just so that the bigger birds were pecking at the turkeys when they were little and the turkeys grew so much faster than the chickens that at some point the chickens just said okay we're gonna lay off the turkey (laughs) so okay well back to you I want to know more about earth roots tell me tell me how it came into be you started you told us a little about about the nidus Mm -hmm. so it wasn't too long after I was in Orange County that a good friend of mine was working at a, she and some other friends had co-founded a community garden in South Laguna. And I was invited to come check it out and got to become friends with everyone there at the South Laguna Village Garden, which has now become the South Laguna Community Garden. I've seen it. Yeah, it's Beautiful spectacular. Space to raise your vegetables. It's the one that's right on PCH. Yes, it's right off PCH and Eagle Rock. And Eagle Rock. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the core crew of of uh, founders of that initial garden in 2004 were Ali, Tagavi, Eric Hummel, and Deanna Moore. And they welcomed me in. And, you know, when I was needing a place to be, I'd go hang out at the garden. And... One evening at my parents' house, we had dinner with some friends of theirs, and one of the moms who was having dinner was a homeschool parent, and she asked me what I was doing, and I told her not really much anything, just healing, and she said, well, what did you do before you were healing? And I told her about my experiences with Costa Rica and with the naturalist position and gardening, and she said, well, what about you teaching a gardening class for my son and his homeschool friends? And I said... That sounds like something I've never done before. I'll do it. That sounds great. So I taught a one-hour or two-hour class at the South Laguna Village Garden, and afterwards the parents all wanted me to do it again, so we set up another class a few 
few weeks away from then and we're just kind of spread really naturally and it happened organically organically <laughs> we're smiling <laughs> at, at our clever use of the word <laughs> yeah and it, w- it was probably six months later that we had a website up and one of the families had given me coaching on how much would be a reasonable price to charge and how to go through and get all the necessary permits for using the wilderness parks and this and that for classes and We've started a business out of it. It's amazing. It is amazing. I was looking through the website before coming into the show today and blown away by all of the offerings. And so that's something that um, you've really given back to the community in in the way that you're bringing so much to them through um, courses. One of the things I wanted to talk about were the um, camping trips that you do. And there was a mention of edibles. <laughs> and I love this part because I remember that my daughter came home and... My husband's a retired pathologist, and my daughter's like, Mom, I can eat this. And my my husband just freaked out. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the edibles. Sure. Uh, people in Southern California have been eating wild food since there were people in Southern California, which is long, long time, thousands of years. Um, and so we're continuing this tradition of teaching people what they can eat that grows without being cared for in terms of being watered or mulched or given fertilizers or compost. Just what you can find either growing through the cracks in the sidewalk or in the wilderness areas. And what your husband brought up is a really important point that, you know, you can't just eat anything and it's really important to know the difference between edible and poisonous and poisonous and medicinal because it's a, it can be a fine line. Right. And so when we teach edible plants, we always start with things that are hard to mix up, you know, like looking at a cactus with a big round red fruit on it. It's hard to mix it's up. It's begging to be eaten. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to mix up with something that might be more deadly, like poison hemlock, which really looks like some of the plants in the carrot family. Hmm. So Interesting. So going out and, and looking at wild edibles is such an incredible education because when you can take something and look at it in a book with words and pictures and read okay this is used for this and this and this or when you can go out into the field and with your bare hands pick something or with tools that you can make out of sticks or rocks and break it off and and process it in whatever way you need to and then eat it you're you're experiencing the life force of that being that plant and the learning becomes so much more accessible. It's sensory. You know, you're experiencing it by touch, taste, smell, the sensation of it on your skin. If if there's a thorn in the cactus and you feel it in your skin, like you'll always remember (laughs) how not to harvest (laughs) the cactus. Well, I think also um, learning edibles in the wild is important if you're like a seasoned backpacker because my brother brings in all his food and it's got to be heavy after a while. And I'm sure he knows a few edibles, but I mean, to know the whole, you know, the garment gamut. of, yeah. yeah, exactly, of edibles might be useful in, in that in that sense as well. That's a great point. Yeah, I've definitely carried my fair share of heavy food on backcountry trips before I understood more about the edible plants. Do you pack less now? I sure do. <laughs> really? Well, okay, so that's an interesting question. When you go out on a trip, how what percentage of your food do you figure you'll gather from your environment? Well, it all depends on where I'm going and how long it's for. If I'm going out of the area, I have to 
plan to pack most of my food because I'm not familiar with the wild edibles in other regions. Okay. So, for instance, if I went backpacking in southern Orange County, there's there's a couple trails where you can. Um, I would, and it was the right season. You know, if it's the heat of summer, I'd have to depend on my own food right. resources and my pack more than if it was springtime when there's a lot, late winter also where there's a lot of delicious greens popping out. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it just all depends. And also how much water there is. In the fall, if you're out and you want to harvest acorns, there's plenty of acorns to harvest, but if there's not a lot of water, then the processing of them becomes a challenge and you wouldn't be able to eat them. Because you can't just pick one up and eat it. It has to have that process. I remember that part is essential. That's right. That's right. Tell me a little bit about that. So acorns are commonly touted as the number one food source for local Native American people. And the Hashiman people are a local tribe. And acorns can be gathered in the fall, and they have this hard shell on them that needs to be cracked off. And then with a stone, you can grind the inside nut, which I call the meat of the acorn, into a fine meal. And then it needs to be leached. It's, it's really high in tannic acid. And if you I've heard that if you eat a lot of tannic acid, you can get a really sharp stomach ache and it can lead to nausea or vomiting. Right. So you definitely want to get the tannic acid out before you put it in your mouth. And to get it out, you would pour it, pour water over it. And, you know, modernly we have really nice nut milk bags, which are finely woven sleeves that you can put the ground acorns inside and then run clear water through the faucet to for like 20 or 30 minutes, squeezing mm-hmm. and rinsing the bag to get all the dark white tannic acid out. So then the issue becomes how much water are you bringing in or are you near a clean water source? Right, exactly. So would running. a stream go or would a stream do or would that be a little bit too bacteria filled to do that? Well, with? just like Kimberly mentioned, a clean water source is key. So if it's a clean water source, so coming straight out of the earth in a spring and you've You've tested known it. people who've who've either tested it, like you said, or who have survived off of it for lifetimes and generations, mm-hmm. which would be hard to come by today in, in southern Orange County. So you don't see many of those then? No? Um, yes. You don't see many of them, I think mainly because you don't see a lot of people living off of fresh water sources. Okay. Back like people used to need to survive off of fresh water sources. So you would, of course, know which ones were yeah. the ones to drink out of. But today, it's there's a lot of buildings and roads and mm-hmm. not too many people living straight off, off the land. Right? Well, a lot of our rivers have turned into runoff, mm-hmm. essentially. And, That's true. And so you really can't put anything in there because They're just a all pathway. the toxins are just a pathway to the ocean, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. So for drinking water, I would certainly drink water that comes locally after purifying it, like yeah, with, yeah. Um, using a, a water filter or boiling it. Um, but for the quantity of water you need to leach acorns, it's substantial. So at least in the technique that I've learned, I'm sure there are many, many ways. But so acorns wouldn't be a practical edible then for you to rely on when you're out. So tell, give me an example of maybe two or three that you could rely okay. on. Let's say especially now since we've just had a nice rain, the hills are green and lush and wonderful and the sun has been reasonably abundant and the heat as well for good photosynthesis. So in a, a week or so, and maybe it's even this weekend coming up on Sunday, Evan, one of the instructors with Earthroots, is leading a course on eating yucca. And yucca is a wonderful plant that's really easy to identify. It's got sharp, 
spiny looking long leaves at the base and then a long stalk that kind of looks like a candle coming out from the that's a really nice analogy when uh-huh. you say other yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the top of this stalk right now are these incredible clusters of white flowers and they're so beautiful and fragrant and you can often see insects flying up to to come in so high how, how high is a stalk like five feet or taller than five feet um, you, you should see the look on Jody's face. The enthusiasm just <laughs> ratcheted up. Almost like she maybe is a, a naturalist version of mouthwatering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. I love yucca. Uh, so the stalks are, I'm using my arms over my head, maybe seven feet tall, okay. eight feet tall. And uh, there's, a, there's a few different parts of the plant you could eat and really useful parts. So the blades, the long spiky blades that come out from the bottom are used often for making rope. So you would take the blades and and hit them with round Mm. stones so that you can get the long straight fibers to come out and then you can make cordage out of that. Hmm. It's very strong, you can make sandals, you can make a belt, you can make rope, you can make a bridge. Wow. You could lash your backpack together if you needed to. So that's from the base, the blades, and then the the petals, the white flowers, can also be eaten after being steamed is the way I prefer them. And it's nice to wait until they're... With a little bit of butter, salt oh, and pepper. You know, try it out. <laughs> and uh, in the in the conversation of edibles, I always like to say reference a guidebook as well. You know, you might hear me talking about the plant and think that you identify it really well when you're out hiking. But it's so nice to have the security and the confidence when looking at a field guide to be able to double check. Is this really it? Yeah. You right. Know? I don't want memory's... any of the listeners to get sick. Yeah, my, <laughs> right. my memory is really hazy. And then sometimes <laughs> things in the book don't quite appear to be what they are in real life. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy. So it's always nice to check. Yeah, get a field guide. There's some yeah. great field guides out there right now on wild edibles. And you can even buy those handy cards that are laminated that right. have pictures. And then there's no confusion. Um, another part of the plant, the yucca plant that can be eaten is the, the base, right? where the blades, the spiky blades at the bottom come out of, that can be roasted in a pit fire. Wow. And I've heard it's incredible. I've never tasted it. I'm, I keep asking Evan, when are we going to have our yucca pit fire roast? I was just at a Mexican restaurant the other day, and they were serving, I think, yucca in a taco. Does that nice. sound right? Or was it just a different kind of cactus? Um, it could have been a different kind of cactus. I've mm. had nopales. Maybe that's, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, tasty. Nopales. That's not there from you the go. yucca plant, right? That's not from the yucca plant. That could be from the prickly pear cactus. Maybe that's what it was, yeah. I that love sounds... eating that, too. And those you can eat almost any time of the year. And that's a really good one to know. The prickly pear cactus is the plant I was alluding to earlier with the juicy, ripe fruits right. and the green, rounded pads. They've got... It's like a steak. Like yeah, a, it's like a naturalist steak. steak. Interesting. It's got filled with spines, though, so you want to be really careful how you approach the plant to do the harvesting. Well, with the spines, is it like eating like a s- salmon and you have to pick the bones out or what's that like exactly? The spines are external to the meat, right? That's right. External okay. to the meat. And you want to get them out before you cook them. All right. So, And there's not as many because there's a very smooth surface in between the spines, not like other cactus where the whole surface is spiny, right? And fine. In my experience of this cactus, you get different amounts of thorns on different plants and also at different life stages of the plant. So you'll want to harvest the youngest pads 
the ones with the soft green spines that can be easily cut off with a knife or brushed off. Gotcha. Once they turn into the hard, woody-like spines. It's not going to be a tasty pad anyway. Not going to be a tasty. (laughs) No ball. (laughs) No grilling, leaching, or anything. I'll bring that one back to (laughs) the frying pan. Well, okay, so, I mean, I love the conversation of the edibles. It's just, it's exciting to me because... That I, I like thinking, I, I guess as a mother, I like thinking that if something were to happen, my kids could survive without me, but mm. uh, they probably need a little bit better education. But is that, what do you think the general vision or the general mission of the school is? The general mission for Earthroots is to connect people more deeply with the natural world. Why? Well, let's go a little further back in, in history. So humans have been connected to nature since day one, right? We all come from from living without buildings. There's Yeah, the caveman period. Right. We didn't have roads and cars and telephones and iPods and iPhones and all these kinds of digital (laughs) things to keep us focused in a in a really inward out you know indoor way. And our senses were able to develop with so much more stimulus because we had sunshine and wind and earth and trees and animals. You know, we had to make sure we were protected from different things at all times. And when we grew through history to become more inward, we lost some of our ability to keep tuning those senses while we're indoors. So in order to maximize our development, being exposed to and in connection with nature is really important. And I, and I get a lot of this background from a few of my teachers John Young is one, Richard Louvre is another, and Kathleen Locklear is the third. And together they really help put a mainstream understanding on this state that we're in right now where people are becoming more and more disconnected with the natural world and these interesting things are coming about, which Richard Louvre uh, coined the term in his first book, Last Child in the Woods, nature deficit disorder. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, give me some examples of some of the um, symptoms of nature deficit sure. disorder. So, All of these, by the way, these resources will be on my website, KimberlyMartin.com or RealPeopleOC.com. Oh, great. Yeah, I think people so, would like to to look at them, so that's great that they'll be posted. Because those people that you mentioned are really pivotal to your to your experience now mm-hmm. as a naturalist and, um, and to your growth, too. Mm-hmm. So there's... A, a lot of dynamic information there that we want you to have. Great. Thanks, Kimberly. So Richard Louvre, in his book, Last Child in the Wood, talks about this nature deficit disorder and how things like early childhood diabetes and obesity and attention deficit disorder, these things that we're seeing in really high percentages in today's youth that have not been showing in such high numbers in recent in our recent past. They're showing up in they're an showing alarmingly up now. And, rising rate, yeah. And he's putting the comparison between the timing of this growth in different illnesses and uh, disorders to the same time that we're having more and more roads paved over and natural spaces plowed and buildings and time spent indoors and on digital machines increasing. Right. And looking at those comparisons and saying, okay, well, if we increase nature, what happens? If we increase our exposure to nature, our exposure to, to healthy culture in nature and to community, 
how can that affect our connection with ourself and our connection with our health and seeing incredible and our connection to what we produce as human beings what our what our personal missions are what mm. we give back to society mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. so so on top of that you know we have John Young who's it has a really incredible personal history. He was mentored since he was a boy by Tom Brown Jr., who was also mentored since he was a boy in this lineage of nature connection and surviving in the natural world. And he's he's really got his finger on the pulse of the nature connection movement and has been an inspiration to mine and now an international movement of nature connection organizations like Earthroots who are coming together and saying, you know, we see this this buildup and this coming together of of deepening our connection with nature, really seeing changes, not just in one community, but in communities all around the world. And if we continue strengthening our connection with the natural world, we'll be protecting more nature and making sure that this opportunity for people to stay healthy and in community and in connection with nature will be able to continue for generations to come. Does this movement have a name? The Nature Connection Movement is a general way to talk about it. Uh, John Young's website has more information about the Eight Shields Institute, which he started. I want to hear more about the Eight Shields. John Mm -hmm. Young is Mm J-O-N-Young.org. JohnYoung.org. Tell me about the Eight Shields. Sure. The Eight Shields Institute is John Young's, I guess, organization where he launches a lot of his teachings from. And he has everything from personal one-on-one mentoring to this international, it's called Tribal Breath, where Nature Connection leaders like myself who either run run an organization or school or are affiliated with helping develop community programs around Nature Connection are on the phone with each other once every month or every other month touching in. So yesterday I was on a call with the Tribal Breath and was talking with someone from Canada, someone from England, and someone from New Hampshire. And we were all getting to connect with each other about the schools that we're involved with and how Nature Connection is happening in our region. And such a powerful experience to be in my line of work, which feels a little bit isolating, you know, and I maybe grew up in in the mainstream Orange County, but now I feel a little bit off to the side where, you know, I'd I'd like to see more people experiencing the natural world than actually do. More people in your community. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, experiencing the natural world in Orange County is a hard task to do. (laughs) Uh, A lot of the little nature preserves are right by toxic lakes or or rivers or streams. And um, where exactly can you go about doing this? Oh, Orange County is so rich with, with ways and places to experience the natural world, but I think they're off the beaten path. Okay. So if you uh, look into the OC parks, that's a great place to start. They've got a great website, and there's many, many regional and wilderness parks in the county where you can step off the pavement and in a few steps lose yourself into trails where you can see deer tracks and bobcat tracks and watch beautiful hawks soaring in the sky and hear bird sounds. And Name insects. one or two of your favorites. Casper's Wilderness Park. Wonderful. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Laguna Coast Wilderness Park. I love that one. Mm. So uh, Laguna Coast Wilderness Park has three natural lakes. Are you kidding I'm me? I'm not oh, wow. kidding you. Uh, now, I don't it's one know of how like I would the have secrets of Orange County. <laughs> wow. How far back do you have to go up? So from the Nix Nature Center, 
you hike for, I would say, not more than a half an hour. And you can get to one of the beautiful lakes. And one time I even saw mountain lions scat there. Huh. Right. Not in the lake, but (laughs) is that unusual? (laughs) To the side. Is that unusual? You said that with a bit of surprise. I would expect that. Is that not? You know, just to see any sign of a mountain lion for me is really incredible. They're the biggest predators that we have in Orange County. And I've never seen an actual mountain lion in Orange County. And so, you're rather demure. Wouldn't you be a little intimidated if you came across one? I'm sure I, I would be. They were kind of shy, I thought they were kind of shy creatures where they, they don't really want to bother anybody. I would expect They that. don't, but they occasionally do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely forewarn the young children in our programs to get closer to a bigger person when, if, when and if we ever saw a mountain lion, you know, because it's always nice to be on the safe side. But I don't have a fear of seeing a mountain lion I think I would I think I would like to see one at some point when I'm standing next to a tall person because I'm a short person (laughs) (laughs) that's true I mean what are some of the defenses for if a mountain lion's near and you're not sure how to act around it Mm -hmm. well I think the first thing to do would be to stay calm yeah I have one friend who he's he spends a lot of time out in wilderness places and he told me a story once about time that he was out with his dog in this canyon and he was off trail and he saw a mountain lion watching him and his dog and he knew that when you see a mountain lion you're supposed to talk in a deep voice that sounds strong and clear and as he was talking to the mountain lion his voice started to get really high it's crazy. Oh, he had the opposite reaction <laughs> yeah because he was so nervous wow. and um and then he he picked up a rock because the mountain lion was approaching him and his dog and he threw it towards the mountain lion to scare the mountain lion away, which it did. And he quickly walked with awareness, you know, not turning his back and running, but with awareness of where the mountain lion was back to his car and got inside and took some deep breaths before driving back home. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Well, there's a couple things I don't want to miss because we're getting short on time. One, of, I, I was so interested. Uh, it was last year that you took your spectacular trip to Africa. Yes. Can you tell me about your trip to the Kalahari? I would love to. That's in Botswana, right? Yes. Okay. We, oh, I had such an such an honor to be able to go on that trip, and it's definitely influenced my life and the life and experiences of Earth Roots, and will continue to. Over time. You took this trip with John Young's group, yes. is that correct? Okay. Yes. I was invited to go with John Young and his co-leader, Nicola Pellian, who runs Trackers International. And they had set up this trip where we were able to go spend time with the Bushmen in the Kalahari Desert. And the Bushmen are, I just looked on Wikipedia to get in some details, and it, if you look there, you can see that it says the Kalahari Bushmen have been living in the same region for 20 to 70,000 years, and some references say longer. And they're known as a a bow hunting tribe. They hunt game with bows and arrows, and they live off the land with the food that they can find in walking distance, Hmm. and they, they use the water that they can store and the water that they can find in walking distance from their village. I'm curious, what were some of their storage methods? Water storage is phenomenally interesting to me. The technique we saw demonstrated and used was an ostrich egg. Hmm. So an ostrich egg is much bigger than a 
chicken egg or a turkey it's egg. It's the equivalent of about 23 of our eggs if you were cooking with an ostrich egg. Oh, my egg. gosh. Yeah. Maybe about the size of, of our heads. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah. Oh, for an wow. ostrich egg. at you both, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little smaller than our heads. Yeah, a little bit smaller than <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we won't say whose head in the room is closest to the ostrich egg side. <laughs> I think I'll volunteer and say me. <laughs> no, I think it's on the smaller side, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Okay. A smaller. Yeah. I, I tested out the capacity when I got home. I bought an ostrich egg from the airport to bring home to share with the students in our programs. And I filled it up with water and then measured it, and it was just about a liter of water. Oh, wow. So an ostrich egg is, has a good capacity. And our typical days in the Kalahari were waking up and meeting our Bushman friends. We had a few people who lived in the nearby village, which was about an hour drive away from the farm we were staying at. And Macau was one of the men, and he, on one of our daily walks, brought us to this bush, and we sat down and he dug at the base of the bush where there were these sticks that he had placed previously and he dug up one of three ostrich eggs and the ostrich egg that he pulled out of the sand and he dusted it off had a rolled up leaf plugging two holes so if you could imagine a green leaf rolled up as like a cork Mm -hmm. and he took off the cork and he broke off the branch from a nearby bush that was hollow like a straw Oh, he you had a cocktail right cocktail. in front of you. Water, fresh water. And in the desert, we were walking for a long time, and our Bushman friends did not carry water bottles with them. And now you know why. They had outposts. They have water stashed in many places throughout the desert, and they have a mental map so that they know when they're on their walks gathering food it's or remarkable. hunting. They know where they can stop to to replenish their bodies with water. So that if it's a dry time and the water holes are dried, they can go to these was subterranean a, storages and drink. So it was just a storage. It wasn't a collecting source. It's also a collecting site. Oh, wow. So you can either take that ostrich egg and walk to a water hole, fill it up, cap it with those rolled up leaves, which, by the way, were very specific. If you use just any leaf, it could make the water foul in, right. in a short period of time. But the specific leaf that he taught us about helps... Um, lengthen the storage time of the water. Preserves it. Preserve it well. So he said that you can also keep the hole open and the holes in the ostrich egg towards the top and angle the leaves down so that when it rains, it's kind of like a water harvesting system that funnels the water into the holes. And then after the rain, he could walk up with his rolled up leaf and plug the holes and bury it with sand and mark it with sticks so so that next time he or another family member or so they leave them for others to use as well, yes. not just for themselves. Yes. One of the most incredible teachings that I learned there was that community sharing is a survival tool. Hmm. They rely on each other. They rely on each other for sharing food, sharing clothing, um, water, building houses, taking care of young, making tools, starting the fire. Everything is shared and I keep trying to tell my children that, too. I'm relying on them to start making dinner before I get home. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to up the ante and we make do, it some practical, realistic consequence if they don't follow through with it, you know. Because so, that's what survival is all about. If, if you don't follow through with these long-honored traditions and cultural techniques and practices then there would be a consequence. That's true. So sharing is... And a quick one for a them. A quick one. Right. That's right. There's no 
there's no grocery store right. to go to if you don't harvest enough food or have a good hunt that season. So they could probably teach a really good lesson in planning for all outcomes. They're the but, best teachers on the planet. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Do you have any place on your website where you chronicle a bit of this journey? I have a so blog that that's on our website. More? On oh, the main wonderful. page, you can scroll down to Jody's Kalahari blog. Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Are you updating that, or is it mostly just things that you're thinking of and adding insights from the trip? Uh, when I was on the trip, I took 23 pages of notes. I was oh, one wow. of the recorders for the group with John Young who went out. And so I posted the first couple pages and every so often I'll post another with more pictures and I don't have any logical sequence of timing to when I do that. So just check back when you can. Okay. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. I love that. You have a dream Mm -hmm. and one of those dreams is, um, is evolving into a a space of your own here in Orange County, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, Earthroots has an incredible opportunity right now that we're so grateful for, and it really feels like a miracle. We have been offered the opportunity to buy almost 40 acres of land in Silverado Canyon to to use as a place for programs and to develop the on-site orchard. and So you can set up a bit oh, of a permanent site for yes, your students? Yes, a permanent site for our students and for the community to come and learn all of these things you know sustainable living practices wilderness awareness um you know how to how to live in balance with the natural world and how to build community around that connection you're touching on something that it sounds to me a little bit like the definition you shared with me early mm-hmm. about permaculture. Mm-hmm. Is that really what you're touching on? That is exactly what we're touching on. Oh, good. Well, let me read Let me read the definition of permaculture. Permaculture is an ecological design system for sustainability in all aspects of human endeavor. It teaches us how um, to build natural homes, grow our own food, restore diminished landscapes and ecosystems, and catch rainwater build communities and much more. Mm. It's it, That's a really compelling concept, mm-hmm. and it's a huge one to tackle, but you think that um, having a permanent space in Silverado Canyon could help you start to develop uh, a little bit more s- skillfully ways to teach your community around you? I know it. This concept? I know it. There are some incredible examples of people doing this in other regions throughout the state and all around the world, and just like the Bushmen in the Kalahari, in order for them to survive, they need to have land that they can tend and that they can provide for themselves with. And for Earthroots, it's the same thing, having a space where we can develop it with respect for the natural world and with respect for our community and our resources that we have there. It's just the whole world opens up. Right. This site has... It's a, almost like a, re-op- a re-grand opening, though, in a way, because society—I mean, society, humanity in general—has been here before. They've just forgotten this art, mm. and this is more like a grand reopening, mm-hmm. in a way of of pulling people back into what they already know from a human standpoint, but have forgotten mm-hmm. because culturally we've separated ourselves from our own nature. Well said. Yeah, that's interesting. I really look forward to. The purchase date, which is coming up June 30th, and exciting being able to move onto the property. And are in you terms close of to programs, meeting your goal for that? We have quite a ways to go, and yeah. we'd, we'd love support from anyone who's feeling inspired by this vision to join us. And you can reach me through our website, 
Wonderful. And there's also a couple pages of photos of the property. I've seen them. I, I think I posted a couple on Real People OC as well. Oh, great. So people could see that. Uh, next week, we are going to have somebody that you've mentored at the Journey School, Michelle Speaker, in the continuation of our um, focus on eco-awareness. She is helping to implement a program that you started in terms of the curriculum um, called eco-awareness. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So first, I want to say that Michelle Speaker and I mentor each other. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. She's a pretty <laughs> special lady. I, and, I, feel, uh, I feel mentored whenever I'm in her presence oh, as well, she's too. wonderful. And she's, she's made quite a contribution to the Journey School in Elisa Viejo and the, the community that expands out from it. And the program that we co-created is called the Eco-Literacy Program. And it's, it's a grade-by-grade curriculum developed to help each student in each grade build upon the previous year so that by the end of their eighth grade year at the Journey School, they have a complete, deeply deeply enriched connection with the natural world. And they've also helped to develop and improve upon the design of their school to make it more in alignment with this vision of being sustainable and in alignment with permaculture. Mm-hmm. So for instance, the the third graders have a whole year where they, they do gardening and learn about farming and cooking healthy food for, that they harvest themselves. And in the fourth, and they do that right there on the campus, on don't campus, they? With the amazing. garden that she's envisioned and put together. It's amazing. The fourth graders have a native plant garden that they tend and learn about the medicinal uses, the edible uses. That's right. And the tools that they can make from the plants there. And the fifth graders do rainwater harvesting on campus. The sixth graders learn about composting. The seventh graders are in charge of creating the permaculture design on campus. And the eighth graders give back by implementing some of their their, their inspiration. Right. Well, we're going to touch on that a little bit more deeply next week. I thank you so much, Jody, for being here. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank and you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you. I wish that we had more time. I cannot believe how we sailed through that hour and um, didn't touch on things as deeply as I was hoping. Maybe we'll get to that again um, sometime in the future. I think we we owe some of these topics um, more more time for sure. Next up, we have uh, Matt Kaplan, Counterspin and Planetary Radio, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I thank you for joining us today, and I will be here next week at the same time. And also for more information about your organization, go to earth-roots.org Cool. Okay. Um, What's next week? Next week is uh, Michelle Speaker, where we're going to delve a little deeper into the eco-literacy program that Jody here and Michelle have uh, co-created. They're implementing it at one school, but your vision really is to put that out there for more schools to participate in, isn't it? That's right. Wonderful. Uh, Heather, as always, thank you so much for making this possible. Yeah. And uh, we'll see everybody next week.